samadhi is concentration, and panya is right understanding or wisdom. And these three things work in relation to one another in a very spiral way. So that unless you have developed a certain kind of wisdom, you wouldn't, for example, come to Naropa. With that coming to Naropa, then you meditate. When you meditate, you develop more wisdom. That wisdom may point up to you more of your impurities, which will lead you to more purification. When you purify more, that will intensify your meditation. As your meditation gets more intense, you will go deeper and you will develop more wisdom. And so wisdom becomes a part of each spiral turn in our sadhana. There are things that I'm understanding as I prepare these lectures each night that I didn't understand a week ago because I wasn't ready to understand a week ago. It's the fire of the demand of this situation that's forcing me to purify sufficiently to be able to do this kind of work to understand And that's going to in turn free me in another way which will intensify my meditation which will keep that spiral going. Now, uh, the wisdom that it keeps referring to, there are two kinds of wisdom, really that's, the word is used very loosely in this particular translation, it could be technically more exact, because there is vijnana and jnana. There are two kinds of knowledge, there is the knowledge of the intellect and there is the higher wisdom, and it's really with the higher wisdom that we're concerned, but we have to get there. And one of the roots through is the root of the intellect. But the problem is that we often get very seduced by our intellect into knowing things. And we go outward rather than inward with it. And we just keep collecting more and more worldly knowledge. However, the intellect is an exquisite tool. It's in a way the most powerful tool we have at our service to get on with our journey once we understand what the journey is. And once we can use the intellect without getting seduced in by all the fascinating things we find out. There is this very subtle, subtle way in which the intellect, being another power or siddhi, it's called siddhi, seduces us into another ego trip, a very subtle ego trip. And that isn't the wisdom, that's knowledge. We're going to kind of differentiate those. But even knowledge, if it is used purely enough, and with a fierce enough one-pointedness, can take you right through. It's like Einstein saying, I didn't arrive at my understanding of the basic laws of the universe through my rational mind. Now certainly he had developed his rational mind to an exquisite degree of sharpness about his problem. But it took him right to the edge, and then, ah, that's what wisdom is, it's the and then. And to give you an example of the way in which it titillates a scientist, J. Robert Oppenheimer writes, if we ask, for instance, whether the position of the electron remains the same, we must say no. If we ask whether the electron's position changes with time, we must say no. If we ask whether the electron is at rest, we must say no. If we ask whether it's in motion, we must say no. Now, how would you like to be a scientist that spent 20 years developing the most high-powered electron microscopy so you could finally get down into that itty-bitty realm of 
quantum mechanics right down into the finest line. And you finally see what you've been looking for. And you write your conclusions and they come out like that. And it blows your whole scene. You've just ruined your whole game. You went too far. You've gone too far now. And what is far out is that if you push the intellect far enough, it pushes you into wisdom, whether you like it or not. But you've got to have the disciplined mind of like a laser beam, the one-pointedness of problem-solving to use your intellect that way. And we'll see how other people don't use it that way later. Now, let's say you wanted to turn it inward. What might you find? Now, you all, I assume, know how a slide projector works. There is a source of light, and you put a slide in, and the light goes through the slide, which determines what light comes through, and it goes on a screen. Now, let's say you wanted to know what, was, what the screen was. All you would see of the screen is what the slide would allow you to see. If the slide was totally opaque, you wouldn't see the screen at all if you were in a dark room. On the other hand, if the slide had nothing on it at all, you would see the screen quite clearly. Well, now, if you could apply that to yourself as a model and imagine that inside you is the light, which we will call the Atman, or since you are a jiva, an individual, we'll call it the jiva Atman, because it's your Atman. It's the little drop of light, of all the light in the universe that happens to be in your center. Forget now where the neurophysiological point of that center is for a moment. Just allow that there is this source of light in you and that it is sending out the entire universe. But what is getting out and being reflected on the screen is determined by the number of opaque veils that the light has to go through on the way out. And those opaque veils are your mind, your thinking mind, your sense desires, all the different parts of your personality, your what's called the ahamkara, your ego structure. So that what you end up seeing out in the world is merely the projection of your own slideshow. I think you're all getting to be aware of that by now. For example, I've used examples very often, like if you're hungry and you walk down the street, you only see what's edible. You, know, you only notice donut shops and pizza parlors, for example. If you're horny, you walk down the street and you specifically notice what's makeable, right? It really affects your perception. Any psychologist who can do show you dozens of experiments that show that motivation affects perception. Now, it may be that when you're horny and you walk down the street, there was a really good donut shop, but you never noticed it. And somebody later says, is there a good donut shop in that town? You say, gee, I don't know. But you can tell them how many of each category of sexual competitor, potential makeable and irrelevant there are in terms of sexual domain. In other words, your desires determine what seems to be out there. You really don't know what the hell is really out there. You only know what you think is out there. And what you think is out there and what I think is out there is just us out there. We don't even know if anything's out there. Neither of us were here, there wouldn't be anything out there. Or maybe there would be. You could just sit around inside your opaqueness and, and think about it. But all your thoughts are affected by your opaqueness, by your desire that there be something out there, or your desire that there not be something. Now, if you will 
go backwards from outside. Sense objects, senses, sense desires, and those are called indriyas, senses. Then there is a thing called the manas, which is the lower mind. And the lower mind is usually connected with all these sense desires and with your thoughts, and your mind is going brrrr, it's collecting now this sense desire, now that thought, and it's just building a whole mosaic which builds up into your ego universe. Okay, now if you get that image of the way the game works, think of it as concentric circles if you would like. Sense objects out there perhaps, senses, the lower mind, then this ego structure. Then there is this thing called the buddhi, which is the higher intellect. It's sometimes related to the third eye. And this buddhi is like a shutter that could go either way. It could get sucked into the mind and the lower mind and go out into the world, or it could turn back inward and aim towards the light and go back to your source or the source of dawn. It's called the buddhi inside. It's like a pivotal thing. The beginning of the wisdom is the recognition of the inner light, which is called the Atman, and thus the beginning to turn that buddhi inward rather than outward, turning the higher intellect to use it so that when J. Robert Oppenheimer gets to that edge, he goes beyond in order to know more deeply into himself. You use the intellect to go inward, the higher intellect. The buddhi is still part of your package, it's still part of the material nature of the sea, but it's right on the brink. In the West we call it the soul, that would be a reasonable analog. It goes between spirit and matter, it can aim in either direction, and it's still very, very vulnerable. Let me read some things about the Atman. In the Bhagavatam, the Atman or divine self is separate from the body. This Atman is one without a second. This is inside you now. Now, those of you that are going through all of the things about impermanence and non-self and all of the Buddhist arguments, for the moment set them aside and just absorb this system. Then we will examine the, the relationship. I won't try to sneak anything by on you, getting you caught in a permanent thing. You don't have to keep your guard up. Imagine this inside yourself now. The Atman or Divine Self is separate from the body. This Atman is one without a second. Pure, self-luminous, without attributes, free, all-pervading. It is the eternal witness. Blessed is he who knows this Atman, for though an embodied being, he shall be free from the changes and qualities pertaining to the body. And this from Emerson. A man is the facade of a temple wherein all wisdom and all good abide. What we commonly call man, the eating, drinking, counting, planting man, does not, as we know him, represent himself but mist represents himself. You hear that? And in Luke, and being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God cometh, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, not through your senses, 
neither shall they say, Lo, here, or there, for lo, the kingdom of God is within you. That is, there is more in you than meets the eye. <laughs> A Zen phrase, the brilliant gem is in your hand. The brilliant gem is in your hand. It's not out there. You've already got it. You already are it. Within the burning house itself, the king of Dharma is to be found. Within the burning house itself, within you, all your melodrama and desires and struggles and all this stuff, could you imagine that in such a disreputable hotel, the king of Dharma is residing. Isn't that far out? And a very beautiful Saint Ram Tirtha who came to America some years back. He said, I am without form, without limit, beyond space, beyond time. I am in everything. Everything is in me. I am the bliss of the universe. Everywhere am I. I am Sat, absolute existence, Chit, absolute knowledge, Ananda, absolute bliss, Tattvamasi, I am that. He's talking from inside now. He's telling you who we are. And you can say, well, he's just a nut. He's just, he's just, he's on a messiah trip. He really thinks he's somebody. Just imagine, he's just one of the people out on the edge who bothered to go inside far enough and is telling you who we are. He's just telling you the same thing you'd be saying when you finish doing what you think you're doing. I am without form, without limit, beyond time, beyond space. Now, if you think of all of these, the buddhi, the ahamkara, ego, intellect, the higher intellect, even the Atman, instead of thinking them as fixed solid things, just think of them as foci of energy that are just always, just happen to have a, an intensity that makes them seem solid for the moment. Just think of them as foci, you'll be more comfortable with them. If you begin to hear this game a little bit now, now you're beginning to explore what's called this wisdom and you're beginning to understand what the goal of the game is. But you need one more ingredient to understand what this game is. And that concerns the relation between the Atman and what's called the Brahman. Because you are a monad, a single spark of light. And that light is part of light. Part of light. And when you have gone back inside yourself through meditation, through study, through non-attachment, when you, now you begin to understand what non-attachment means, when you're not sucked out by sense desires so that your mind isn't going outward, but is free to go inward, where you go in, and in and out are just little metaphors we're playing with, you go inward, you come back into the light, back into it, the one drop, and the one drop is part of the all drop, and you merge into what's called the Brahman, or the all, which we are going to start to relate to the nirvanic state in a little while. 
Now the way you use the method of jnana yoga is you start right from where you're at. You start because you're an actively thinking person. And while it would be nice if you could take the prescription, just let go of all your thoughts, don't be attached to them. I think you're all finding that it's not as easy as all that. And so instead of just wiping out all the thoughts, one of the things to do is to work with them by what you fill them with, which thoughts you have. And so you start with the lower intellect, the manas, and you start to study. And you study the scriptures, and you study from teachers, and you come to Naropa Institute, and you take notes, and you collect knowledge. That isn't what the wisdom is about. That's merely a vehicle that's going to help you get there. All the knowledge collected as objective knowledge isn't wisdom. You can know knowledge, but you can only be wise. Knowledge is like Joseph's coat of many colors. It's really groovy, and you can flash it. Very flashy. When I was a Harvard professor, we'd sit around flashing our knowledge of one another. It was just so exquisite how, well, I know this. Well, can you quote this? Well, I'm a student of the Abhidhamma. Well, I know. <laughs> and it's all so exquisite how much we know. And this gathering is full of knowledgeable beings. But if each knowledgeable being will look inside themselves, they will find there's often a considerable discrepancy between knowing it and being it. Because knowledge is despair if it's all by itself, without, without deep wisdom. Uh, Uspensky, Rajiv, in, in Uspensky, Rajiv is talking about that knowledge which is not in accordance with being cannot be large enough or sufficiently suited to your real needs. It will be always a knowledge of one thing together with ignorance of another. A knowledge of a detail without an understanding of the whole. A view of the form without a capturing of the essence. Actually, at a given level of development, it is only possible for you to be able to use a certain amount of knowledge. Beyond that, you've just overloaded the cup because you can't absorb it anyway because your being hasn't developed enough. You can get a three-year-old child, if you train them through Skinnerian reinforcement techniques, to recite incredibly complex mathematical formula. But the level of his being may not have developed to the point where it does a hell of a lot of good. And a lot of this early schooling is very naive about the relationship between the development of the being of the person and the development of knowledge. Rajiv goes on, Spencer goes on to say, knowledge may be the function of one center, the thinking center. Understanding, however, is the function of many centers. Thinking apparatus may know something, but understanding appears only when a man feels or senses what is connected with him. Now what we're doing is I'm trying to take you on the path from the intellect, from knowing you know something, to the intuitive sense of connectedness with stuff. That is where we're starting to get to the wisdom where you're, it's affecting your being, it's not just a change in your shirt or your dress. And the problem is that your desire to know often gets in the way of your development of intuition. There are some terribly frustrating problems you face with this vehicle. This beautiful line that says, ambition does to intuition what a weevil does in a granary. Hear that? Ambition does to intuition what a weevil does in a granary. I want wisdom. Tough. All you can get that way is knowledge. That's the frustrating part of it. We're dealing with a very subtle quality now. 
You're not going to be able to do it like Westerners do it. I'm going to grab it, I'm going to take my 45s, and I'm going to go into that town, and I'm going to get it. I want that wisdom. Come on, give me that wisdom now. You know? I have all the credentials. I've earned the right to have that wisdom. How about that one? Ah, uh, this is a good one. It infuriates you. Oh, it's so beautiful. In um, Ramana Maharshi, for men of little understanding, wife, children, and others comprise the family. For the learned, there is a family made, out of, made up of countless books in their mind, which are also obstacles to yoga. That is, a lot of the stuff you filled your mind with starts to get in the way. It's that you have to clean house a lot, and when you sit down and meditate, you will begin to rue how much you put in as it all starts to come out. I used to sit in the temple trying to do my breathing from my right below my pelvic you know, ribcage, the uprising, falling. And I would be remembering Amo, Amas, Amad, Amam, you know, things like that. Pai Chung said, if one clings to what others have said and tries to understand Zen by explanation, he's like a dunce who thinks he can beat the moon with a pole or scratch an itching foot from the outside of a shoe. It will be quite impossible. And Vivekananda said, uh, and I've used this many, many times, he said, all of life is not for schoolboy fights and debating societies. Like I often say, I won't appear on a panel. I don't debate. Because I'm not interested. I do what I do. I'm working as well as I can. I don't debate. Means because I get so, would get so seduced into the game of debate, to the intellectual exercise, that I can't afford it. What I'm saying. I can't afford to debate at this point. The minds of the so-called learned scholars are attached to things of the world. Hence it is that they cannot acquire true knowledge. What good could the reading of a vast number of sacred works do them? And when you read the commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita, if you really just sit down and read commentaries just for fun, like eight or nine or ten commentaries, it's amazing because you come to some commentaries that are scholarly, so exquisite, they're breathtaking. But then you come across one line and you'll know that poor slob. Nothing's really happening. That person's so busy with their Sanskrit exquisitry that they've turned into a super pundit. But because of their unfortunate karmic predicament of still being attached outward, they are like vultures watching the charnel pit. They haven't used it to go inward. St. John of the Cross, all that the imagination can imagine and the reason conceive and understand in this life is not and cannot be a proximate means of union with God. So you're beginning to see that what you're faced with is collecting intellectual knowledge about what this whole game of wisdom is about, enough to get you going with your various sadhanas of meditation, of working with, as we're going to show how you work with the intellect as a method later in a different way, 
But you develop, you use your old style intellectual, I know that and I know that and I've read that and I've studied that and that leads to that and I'll tell you about this. You use all that to get you ready to do the next thing. One of the parts of the next thing is to get rid of all that. That is, you use a crutch to get you going and then you throw the crutch away. And so it's disposable knowledge. It'll all be there, don't worry, you can't get rid of it anyway, but it'll be a new way. Ramakrishna goes on with his scathing attack and he says only two kinds of people can attain to self-knowledge. Those whose minds are not encumbered at all with learning, that is to say not overcrowded with thoughts borrowed from others, and those who after studying all the scriptures and sciences have come to realize that they know nothing. That's when it's really working is you begin to see that the know-nothing is the next step in this whole trip. That you learn and learn and learn until you realize you don't know anything, and that's the root through. You use models to get you going, but you don't cling to the models. You keep letting go of the models. You keep getting letting go of the intellectual structure. I'm going to share a delightful uh, Hasidic story. A rabbi went out in the morning, and he met the chief police. The chief of police asked the question, where are you going, Rabbi? He was obviously going to the synagogue to say his morning prayers. The police chief had asked the question in a friendly spirit, but the rabbi had no answer except to say, I don't know. The police chief was antagonized. It's obvious where you're going, and he threw him into prison. The rabbi said, see? When I left the house this morning, I thought I was going to shul, but I ended up in prison. Right? One more Ramakrishnaism. When a thorn runs into your foot, you take it out with another thorn. And having done so, you throw them both away. So, relative knowledge, or vidya, is necessary to remove relative ignorance, or avidya, which blinds the eyes of the self. But before a man can attain the highest jnana, wisdom, he must do away with both of them. For Brahman is above and beyond all relativity. Somebody sent me this poem. The freer I get, the higher I go. The higher I go, the more I see. The more I see, the less I know. The less I know, the more I'm free. That's really that whole sequence. You collect it, and you get just enough knowledge to see. You look over the hill and you realize your knowledge wasn't worth a damn. And then you throw it away, and you're freer than you were before you started. That freedom leads you to new knowledge. And that knowledge takes you to a place where you realize you don't understand a damn thing. And then you're free to throw that away. Egyptian, if you allow the thought unbridled to become the master before you have learned true understanding, the reasoning intellect threatens to choke the truth within you. If the student of the way wishes to understand the real mysteries, he need only put out of his mind attachment to anything whatsoever, says Wang Po. No man shall attain the shores of the ocean of true understanding, except he be detached from all that is in heaven and earth. 
Tai Hui, and he said the reason the Buddha teaches all kinds of doctrine is because there are all kinds of thoughts from which people are required to be liberated. If we are free from thoughts, there's no need of teaching any kind of doctrine. And if you can hear that, that you are starting with a certain intellectual model. Now you're going to study a certain teaching to get an intellectual model that is suitable to the one you're stuck with. It's a specific thorn to get rid of the thorn you got. And then later you're going to throw away both thorns. Now we're still not, uh, we're still on the path of the intellect. We've been talking about the lower intellect and the pitfalls of it. But when you've begun to sense that there is in you this light, and this light is the same thing as consciousness, same thing, let's not use the word consciousness, let's talk about that knowledge, the knowledge of how it all is, is already within you, all in you. Then your whole process of life becomes one of shedding the veil, not of getting anything new, but letting go of the stuff you don't need. And also you begin to listen for this inner voice, what the Quakers call the still small voice within tiny little intuitive voice and the word intuition starts to mean something. And I just want to read you two very beautiful things of what intuition is like. One of them comes from Robert Heinlein and it's the word grok. Take this word grok. It's the way in which this uh, Michael Valentine Smith, who's a Martian, uh, understands things. Its literal meaning, which one which I suspect goes back to the origin of the Martian race as thinking creatures and which throws light on their whole map, is easy. Grok means to drink. But a Martian would use grok if I had named a hundred other English words, words which we think of as different concepts, even antithetical concepts. Grok means all of these. It means fear. It means love. It means hate, proper hate, for by the Martian map you cannot hate anything unless you rock it. Understand it so thoroughly that you merge with it and it merges with you, then can you hate it by hating yourself. But this implies that you love it too and cherish it and would not have it otherwise. And I think that Martian hate is an emotion so dark that the nearest human equivalent could only be called mild distaste. Grok means identically equal. The human cliche, this hurts me worse than it does you, has a Martian flavor. The Martians seem to know instinctively what we learn painfully from modern physics, that observer interacts with observed through the process of observation. Grok means to understand so thoroughly that the observer becomes a part of the observed, to merge blend, intermarry, lose identity. It means almost everything that we mean by religion, philosophy, and science, and it means as little to us as color means to a blind man. If I chopped you up and made a stew, you and the stew, whatever was in it, would grok. And when I ate you, we would grok together, and nothing would be lost. And it would not matter which one of us did the eating. That the relation to the universe 
the intuitive relation of the universe is not objective knowledge. If anything, it would be called a subjective relationship to the universe. Now we're getting close to the Atman, to the concept of what oneness means, to the idea that you are inside of everything. That when you and I, when I say to you, Namaste, I am saying I honor the place in you where there is only one of us. So that at that point, I recognize that if I can look through all of the slides veils, I am talking to myself. It is me talking to myself. One other image from Lin Yutang of this intuitive way. He says, Western philosophers have always gone on the assumption that fact is something cut and dry, precise, immobile, very convenient and ready for examination. The Chinese deny this. The Chinese believe that a fact is something crawling and alive, a little furry and cool to the touch that crawls down the back of your neck. A fact. Understand that fact. There are a number of methods for using the intellect to go beyond the intellect into the Atman. And when you rest in the peace of the Atman, you become one in the Brahman. You become one with it all. You rest in total quiet. One of the ways of doing that is presented by Ramana Maharshi. It's called the method of vichara atma, of who am I? And when you have the discipline, you can do it. It's a beautiful method if you can stand it. You sit down in your meditative stance, seat, and you say, who am I? And then you go through the process of neti neti, meaning I am not that and I am not that. You start out and you say, I am not my senses. Now you're using your intellect, right? I am not my senses. I knew we'd hear. At this point, the lecture is interrupted by a man in the audience who announces that he loves them with all his heart and soul and that he is leaving because he has been rejected by them three times. Vichara Atma, who am I? By continuing, I'm not denying the existential moment. I'm assuming that we all are processing this. You have to stay wide open. You never know where the next message comes from. But it doesn't mean that you don't trust your intuition as to when you need to work with a message and when you don't. That leads to a digression. I was giving a um, darshan, having a darshan in uh, the Universalist Church in Central Park West in New York City some years back. And there was an Indian musician. And, um, the church is set up so that on the back wall is a huge mural of Christ washing the feet of one of his disciples. And I was there all in white flowers. That was a time, as I recall, when my father was sitting in the back with his new wife-to-be, 
And um, at one point he leaned over and he said, you know, he said, I feel just like the Virgin Mary. <laughs> that, that isn't the story, that's just an assignment. But, um, <laughs> as I was, um, uh, as Pranath was singing, a man appeared and came up and he was dressed completely in black leather and he had a black cross. And um, after Pranath stopped, uh, there were a lot of steps up to the uh, platform. This man walked out in the middle and he kneeled down facing the mural and facing us and he sang um, Kaddish, that is he sang the prayer for the dead in Hebrew. And it was an extraordinarily powerful moment because he was really a good cantor, really do it. And I felt that it was a great addition to the moment and he finished and he went off to the side and I did my thing. And then we got all done and we started to sing and we were singing uh, Hare Krishna and the audience was all up and into it and I got dancing, which I sometimes do. And I stood up and I had my eyes closed and my arms out and I was dancing and I suddenly felt these two wet things on the palms of my hands. And I opened my eyes and somebody had given me a box of strawberries and this fellow had come out and taken two strawberries and ground them into my hands as the stigmata. Right? And I was aware at that moment that somebody had loaned us an oriental rug and that I shouldn't let the strawberries drop on the oriental rug. Because you've got to remember your zip code. You've got to keep it all together at every level all the time. So I grabbed the strawberries and I sat down on the stage and I ate the strawberries. And then he stood up and he started to uh, exhort everybody about the Armageddon and the impurity of their actions and that they were going to be cast into hell. And the audience listened for about four or five minutes and then they started to ohm. And he kept on doing this in a very loud voice and the ohming got louder until it was like ocean waves of ohm. Just, and it would, his voice would come out and then it would disappear into the waves of ohm and then it would come out. And I went over and sat next to him, we started to hold hands. And it turned into a more and more beautiful, um, if you will, art form of the spirits, really. Because everybody realized the purity of his statements you know, whether or not we agreed with it or got frightened as he would like us to. And afterwards, he and I went out and meditated in Central Park. And it was a very beautiful, beautiful moment. And uh, I'm going to do one more of those stories now, digressing again, because uh, in a moment like that is something for us to learn and work with those things. One day I was sitting um, on the front lawn of my father's farm in New Hampshire. He has a very big, fancy looking place. And I was alone there. I live in a little cabin behind the house. And I was sitting out at sunset. I was sitting naked out in the front yard doing asana. And a little Volkswagen drove up. And I saw in the distance two people got out of it, a man and a woman. And a box of stuff was thrown out, fell. And the Volkswagen drove away. And I'm way out in the country. And usually nobody visits me after a certain time. And I'm doing my thing. But there they were. 
And they walked over to me, and I was just sitting there, and they sat down, and I said, uh, well, would you like some tea? man said, he's a boy in his early 20s, he said, yes, we'll take some. And so I got up, and I put on my pants, and I went in, and I made some tea, and I brought out tea and a bowl of fig and three cups, and I set it down. I thought we'd have tea at the sunset. He took the bowl of figs, and he threw the figs on the ground to fill the tea into the bowl. He wanted to drink out of the bowl. And then he took a fig, and he stuck it in his mouth, and he chewed it out, up, and then he put it into his girl's mouth, spitting it into his mouth. Not a word had been said. And I realized that it was sunset, and obviously they weren't going anywhere. And the uh, car had driven away. Had this big house. So I said, well, um, I live in the cabin behind the house, but my father has said I can use the back room, the back bathroom. Uh, I don't use the rest of the house because that's his trip. If you'd like to stay up in that room, okay. Bill says, well, we'll look at it. Okay, so we went up and I carried his box upstairs, settled down, and they said they would be satisfied. They would take the room for the night. I said, well, I'm going up and I'm going to cook dinner up at the cabin, and I'll ring a bell, and if you want to come up, it's just rice and stuff, but if you want, come on up. Dinner, rang the bell, and she came up. I said, isn't your friend coming? She says, no, he's afraid to leave the suitcase. He's afraid someone will steal it. Okay. So he ate dinner, and I sent some food down with her, down to him. And then around 10.30, I went down to see that everything was all right. It all seemed cool, and I offered them a joint. We smoked a joint together. Love him. So, well, I'm going to bed. And I went to bed and I said, now, here's your room and your bathroom is downstairs and these doors we keep closed. That's the, my father's father. Went to sleep and around three in the morning, I heard this screaming. I heard this, I will not stand for this. And I sat up and I looked out of my cabin window and in the house, every light in the whole house was on. So I got up and I went down to the house and he had gone through the house and systematically taken all of the drawers and opened them up and turned everything upside down. He had taken chalk and written all over the walls. He had put ink into the sinks. He had put ketchup into the piano. He had on three pairs of my father's pants and three shirts. Right? So I surveyed the whole scene. It's now three in the morning. Right? Now, you've got a choice at this situation. You could call the police. But that's kind of heavy. And after all, I mean, it's all done now. The best thing to do is just sit there. If I sit there for the rest of the night, what more can he do if I'm right there? You know? I'm a student of karate. So I sit down in the middle of the living room and I start to meditate, figuring I'll just fill the place with such good vibrations that it'll cool him out. Right? And he comes down and he sees me looking really holy. He's got his diary. He sits down and he says, well, he says, this is a very comfortable place. I think I'll stay four or five days. And it blew my cool completely. I mean, my, my whole holy cover was very thin and I said, like hell you will, you son of a bitch. You'll be out of here tomorrow morning. And, and he just looked at me and he laughed. 
they laugh, they laugh. And he went upstairs and he went into the bathroom and he locked the door. And I was so freaked, my bones, my muscles, my back was all tight and oh, I had to do asanas and breathing and deep breathing. It took me about a half an hour to get my center back. And then I went up and I knocked on the door and he opened and he says, what do you want? And I said, I want to thank you, you're a very great teacher. And he said, too many people have been calling me the Buddha. Right? I mean, it's, there's, not, there's not an inch in the whole story, I'll tell you, you know. So he says, get in that room. So I go in the room. He says, sit down on the bed. Sat down on the bed. Sit in the lotus, don't be a slob. I got in the lotus position. And then he sat down opposite me. That was around 4.30 in the morning. And the next thing I remember was around 7. The meditation was one of the deepest meditations that I had ever remembered having at that point. 7, I came out of this meditation and I said to him, Would you like a cup of tea? Yes. So I went downstairs, and by the time I came back, he was totally wild again. And he demanded a new suitcase and so on. He says, well, I'm not going. I said, oh, yes, you are. No, I'm not. And I just took his arm, and I put it around his back, and I gently urged him into the car, took him to the state highway. And I said, well, here's where you start a thumb. And I let them out, and the girl says, I don't want to go with him. Okay, you can take a bus from town. She says, but he's wearing my fur coat. So I said, well, may I have the fur coat? So he swung at me, and I took his arm, and I put it around his back, and I slowly we took off the fur coat, and we left him with his box of laundry by the side of the highway, and we drove away. And I loved him so much. Right? And he got about 30 miles away, and apparently who picked him up got frightened, and he ended up in the Concord Hospital. And he called me from the Concord Hospital. And from then on, he called me roughly every night for the next two weeks. He jumped out of the fourth floor window of the Concord Hospital, and he escaped. And he just went from place to place. And the love between us was incredibly strong. And since then, I've heard from him about once a year. He's now married, a whole different sequence. It's all very settled, right? But I, I use that as another example of the phenomenon of dealing with our mind, our collective mind, and working with the stuff that comes along, no matter how it is, how jarring it may be, or weird. Sorry for all those digressions. No, no, that, that was a cheap trick. <laughs> Don't get sucked in by that stuff. A, I'm an old showman from way back. <laughs> and in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's all those levels. 
I mean, what do you think this is? You know, this is all showbiz too. You know, look at all the television cameras and the lights. And the, But you sit and you say, who am I? And you say, I am not my senses. And then one by one, you make the process of your sense an object. You notice your eyes seeing. You notice your ears hearing. You have noticed your ears hearing. You go inside until you can so to speak, watch your ears hearing. Like I'm speaking to you and all these waves are coming into your auditory canal and they're into the vestibular membrane and the cochlear nerve, cochlear thing, and then they go on the auditory nerve up into your brain. That's all mechanically running on. So you can sit back and watch the whole trip, but then you watch your nose smell and your tongue taste and your skin feel, like you watch the feeling of the sensation of the ground on the bottom of your leg. Right. And then you continue on and you say, I am not my organs of motion. It's your arms, your legs, your tongue, your anal sphincter, and your genital organs of motion. And you experience each case objectifying them, so they're not you. So you don't think it's my anal sphincter. It's just look at that anal sphincter. And then you start with, I am not my internal organs. And you go through your heart beating, and your lungs breathing, and your stomach and intestines digesting and excreting your yeah, your respiratory blood circulation digestion then it, you know I'm not my torso then you're left in my head then you're left with one thing which are your thoughts all that's left are the thoughts and the final statement is I am not this thought you've gotten way way down inside it's your identification with the thought I I, and then you say, I am not that either. And at the point where you can stay with the discipline of extricating yourself little by little from body, from senses, from emotions, from everything, right back to the last thought, blue, you go through the door. And then you become one with the Brahman, move into the Atman. And it's using the intellect to beat the intellect. But it takes a kind of discipline that is so fierce, so incredibly fierce. Because you'll just get rid of your eyes, ears, nose, etc. And you'll be on your respiratory system and you'll suddenly hear something. And you'll be your ear hearing. Then you've got to go back and do that one again. And you've got to get very quiet to be able to use this method. It's the method, the most fierce Gyan method advocated by Ramana Maharshi, great, great saint of India. The other one you're familiar with, I think, is the Zen Koan. And my charming introduction to the Zen Koan was at a Benedictine monastery in Elmira, New York, where there was a gathering of holy beings. 
and we all were taking turns doing our trips to each other. And it turned out that one four in the morning, I was sitting next to Swami Satchidananda and Swami Venkateshananda, and we were all being taken through a Zen sitting by Sasaki Roshi, who is a very, very fierce Japanese teacher of a form of Zen that uses the koan, that is the insoluble riddle. And Sasaki Roshi said, after he had taught us how to sit, which is an incredibly fierce sitting position of tension, with your hands back right below your navel and your chin down and your arms out, it's a state of tension. And he said, now, he said, um, how you know your Buddha nature through sound of cricket? Now what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to just think about that as you're sitting in this miserably uncomfortable position at four in the morning. You're supposed to say, how do I know my Buddha nature through the sound of a cricket? And you think, and you think, and you think. See, and then you get called in for Dokusan for a personal meeting. And there's a form. You come in and you bow and you scrape and you get in and you touch the floor so many times. And then you sit down on the student cushion and he's sitting with a bell and a stick. Ah, doctor. Doctor, how you know your Buddha nature through sound of... Well, I've been working for about an hour getting ready for this moment. And I had arrived at a plan. What I decided I would do was that when he asked the question, I would hold up my hand like Milarepa does sitting in front of the cave, right? Listening to the universe, right? I figured I'll throw him a Tibetan answer since I'm a Jewish Hindu and he's Japanese, then it'll at least confuse him, if nothing else, you know, I'll at least snow him a little bit, you know. So I went like this. And he picked up his bell, and he rang it, and he said, 60%. Which completely sucked me in, of course. Because the Jewish achiever's got to get the other 40%. You can't. I mean, if there were ever weevils in the granary, it's me, believe me. So sometime later on, I was, um, found myself in a sauna bath in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, with um, a Tibetan nun and um, a um, Allen Ginsberg and uh, Bhagwan Das. It was a colorful group of people sitting around naked in this sauna bath and um, a telegram arrived for me and uh, the telegram said there will be a um, uh, Rohatsu Dai Sashin starting uh, and it gave the date which was uh, a day two days later from the moment I was sitting in the sauna bath where I had come planning to spend about two weeks lying around 
And it said, the telegram said, uh, this is the most difficult sashin of the year. It will go on for nine days. We have reserved a place for you. Now this is Sasaki Roshi's scene, right? And I thought, oh God, nine days of that? You know, and I'm sitting in the sauna bath in total sensual bill, you know? But there was something in it. And I called them immediately and I said, well, I'm only a beginner and that's for advanced people and thank you so much for thinking of me. And I certainly would like to sit with you sometime and, you know, and they said, oh, you can do it. Which got me in the next vulnerable place. And I found myself a few hours later on a plane for Los Angeles. And I arrived after a long trip and a car ride up into the mountains, and I arrived at the Zen Center, Mount Baldy. And I was met by a fellow in a black robe with a bald shaved, shaved head. He hands me a towel and a black robe and a pillow. And he said, uh, your name? I said, Ram Das. You will be in the upper bunk in cabin four. Thank you taken to cabin four and there's about eight bunks in there and I'm in the up one of the upper bunks. Uh, we will be you will be in the Zendo in five minutes please in your robe. Okay. Nobody says gee Ramdas great that you came or you know it's not one tiny bit of ego feeding in the whole thing. So I walk into the Zendo and there's a place with Das on the back of it. place me to sit and I sit down and they teach us how to sit and one what then begins is something that it is hard to believe is going on in America 30 miles from Los Angeles it's really hard for me to believe we started every morning at 2 a.m. and went till 10 o'clock at night so we had four hours of sleep it was really very cold on the top of the mountain there was even snow on the ground we uh, got up at two, we had five minutes to wake up, wash, and be in the zendo. Once you sat down at two in the morning and the bell rang, you could not move, and there was a man walking back and forth, a tough-looking guy with a big stick. And if you moved, he came up to you and he hit the floor, and everybody knew you'd been caught, see? And then he turned, and then he would honor you, and you would honor him, and then you'd lean down, and he'd beat you three times on that shoulder, and then you'd lean the other way, and he'd beat you three times on that shoulder, and he'd beat you. It really stung for about 15 minutes afterwards. And then you thanked him, and he thanked you, and then you went back into your position. And it didn't have to be a gross thing you did. I mean, like, uh, imagine that you just woke up, and your sinuses are full and you're sitting there and the mucus starts to drip out of your nose and over your mustache and down your beard and you go that would do it see the first day you might get a but the second day you get the stick and if you need to go to the bathroom you've got to get up and go a certain route and you get to the guy and you say I need to go to the bathroom and he says be quick you say yes and you run out and you got to uh, you can't go because you're so nervous you won't get back in time for right? five five you're given a koan to solve and you're supposed to buy Sasaki Roshi and you see him five times a day 
Five times a day you come to see him and he says, gives you your koan, you give him your answer that you thought up. And he gives you answers like, first time he just says, no, rings the bell. Then later he gets into subtleties like, oh doctor, I expected more of you than that. That's a nice one. You know, you walk out and you say, well, screw him, I'm going to leave here, I don't need to stay here, right? Right? By the third day, I was really sick, and my back had gone out of joint, and I was thinking, what I really need is an osteopath. Sorry, my back, I've got this bad back, and you'll have to, you know. And I was totally wildly paranoid. I mean, I felt they were out to get me, you know. Because the guy because next the guy to me, next they didn't beat, they didn't him, beat him at all. Him at and all, all I really all saw I really most of the time was the bottom of the sneakers, sneakers because we would walk, would walk, do walking meditations, and you had to watch the bottom of the man's sneakers in front of you, and his were too big. And I became aware of how he kept them on his feet. That was mainly my preoccupation when we were walking. And his name was Leonard Cohen. He's a poet and a musician that I'm sure you mean. They never beat him. Me, a professional holy man, they were whipping left and right. And about the fifth day, I was so totally paranoid and uptight. Nobody gave me one bit of warmth. You had to run to all your meals, and you sat and you cleaned your bowl and served. Everything was totally ritualized. And finally, I was so uptight and so furious that I realized I didn't give a damn about the koan. And I walked up to him, and I just didn't give a damn, you know? And I walked in, and he said, how you know you're whatever it was that he was asking me those days. And I didn't, I couldn't 